0: why don't we open with a word of prayer, as we should do. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, just a a beautiful day. Thank you for a beautiful season, uh, not just in the calendar year, but also just in our church, uh, in our lives. We thank you for your grace to us, and we just ask for uh, your grace tonight as we work through the epistle to the Romans. I pray that you would give us a good understanding and encourage our hearts by what we uh, find here. Uh, help us to be able to uh, to make our way through the ground we need to cover and I pray that this would be beneficial for everybody to encourage their study uh, of this magnificent uh, epistle. In Jesus name, Amen. I just want to welcome you back if you are should be in Romans. Um, last Wednesday night we got a broad look uh, at the main message of Romans and the main message of Romans. Anybody want to raise their hand and tell me what it is? Bruce? God's glory. God's glory. Excellent. So it's the glory of God uh, through the revelation of God's righteousness. Um, Romans reveals God's righteousness. Um, we looked at themes and outlines. You should have that sheet in front of you. Themes and outlines of Romans. Uh, themes are evident by Uh, the repeated use of key words. We saw themes of law and gospel, sin and wrath, righteousness, faith, salvation, spirit and flesh, life and death. And of those themes that we had listed there, uh, several of them we noted involved key words that were repeated more than 50 times. uh, And that revealed a special emphasis and started to show us really what the main message of Romans is. We saw uh, themes, keywords repeated more than 50 times were like law, sin, righteousness, and faith. And we said that in the themes of law and sin, uh, we recognize the sovereign place of the divine lawgiver, the divine judge, and the very presence of law, whether it's law that's revealed in the heart and testified to by the conscience, or whether it's revealed in uh, the written word. The very presence of law indicates the existence of a perfect, absolute standard, which is an extension of the absolute being of God, who is by nature righteous. There is, as Paul teaches in Romans, there is no salvation through that law, but there's only an expectation uh, that we would perfectly adhere to the law. Um, and that results, for all of us who are born into Adam, that results in our condemnation because we've already blown it. Uh, we have, we're born into sin and then we prove that we are sinners by, by sinning. Uh, so the, uh, the fact of the law um, just demonstrates that we are, we are under condemnation, under God's wrath. So none of us in Adam's race... Are able to keep the law because we've all been born into sin. So this commandment which is holy and righteous and good uh, ends up condemning us and it just reveals our fallen condition and really it points us to Christ. That's one of the uses of the law. So all of that so far reveals the righteousness of God but not all of the righteousness of God thankfully. Uh, what we have mentioned so far is only part of the story. The righteousness of God uh, has at this point consigned us all under disobedience. That's the message of Romans one through three, um, and it resulted in our condemnation. The rest of the story is the rest of Romans. Um, that though we've been consigned to disobedience and that results in our condemnation, the rest of the story is the gospel. And this is what uh, this is how Paul actually introduces the letter. If you see Romans one. Uh, 16 and 17 he says I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek for in it that is in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith or from faith to faith as it is written the righteous shall live by faith four times in that you can see The word, the reference to faith, believing, trust, uh, putting our faith in God. There's gospel, salvation, and in it the essential thing is the righteousness of God. Uh, That term righteousness of God is one of the interpretive issues that's really been attacked in in our day. Um, Just some people will say that the whole book of Romans is merely about God vindicating his own righteousness uh, and, and certainly there is an element of us seeing the righteous character of God on display. Um, but this, when it comes to human salvation, righteousness of God as a, as a concept has to do with God declaring us righteous. It's the, it's the lawgiver and the judge who does condemn us under the law and yet at the same time will justify the ungodly on the basis of Christ's perfect atoning sacrifice He imputes our sin to Christ and punishes Christ instead of us. He imputes Christ's righteousness to us and treats us as if we obeyed all the law. So that is the doctrine of justification imputation. And that righteousness of God uh, is a declaration that we are righteous, positionally righteous before God, and we stand in Christ uh, perfect and complete. So the gospel that's revealed in the New Testament And particularly here in Paul's letter to the Romans, it really does complete the fullness of God's righteousness. Apart from the Gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed only in part. But in the Gospel, the fullness of divine righteousness is manifest and it's all to the salvation of God's chosen people. And that's what Romans is about, what the Gospel is about, what Christianity itself is about. It's all about the righteousness of God. Romans, the Gospel, Christianity Christianity itself, it's not about man, it is about God. So, all that we learn in Romans, uh, whether it's the condemnation of all mankind, whether it's the the plan to save God's elect by grace through faith in Christ, whether it's uh, about the sanctification of God's elect by the Spirit, uh, whether it's the the topic of the sovereignty of God in electing and condemning individuals and nations, uh, whether we're talking about the manifestation of God's glory through the Church, all of those things we learn in Romans, um, they're all about the glory of God. So to all those, if you look at Romans 1:7, 7 this, this letter is written to all those, Romans 1:7 who are in Rome, who are loved by God, and called to be saints. So to all of them, this revelation of the fullness of God, uh, of divine righteousness, this is good news for them. It's good news for them. Very good news. Because they are among those who will bring glory to the manifold grace of God, the wisdom of God, and justifying the ungodly. And that's why Paul opens this letter with that benediction there in uh, the second half of verse 7 there, Romans 1-7. Grace to you and peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. That benediction rightly falls on all those who are loved by God and called to be saints. Okay? So that's just to sum up what we kind of talked about last time. And now we want to understand why did Paul write this letter? Um, who are these Roman believers? What was the occasion of his writing to them? What was the Where did this church come from? Uh, and all the rest. It came to the saints who are in Rome, as it says there in chapter 1, verse 7, and now we're going to talk a little bit about the city of Rome. You'll see on your outline, uh, you know, just the city of Rome is the first point there. Like all of Scripture, um, these, all these writings are rooted in history. They're prompted by specific occasions. They're set in actual situations at particular times and in particular places. And this epistle, this letter, is no different. It is a letter from an actual guy to actual people in an actual place in an actual time. Uh, that's something I love about Christianity. It's not just this, uh, some mystic sitting in a cave kind of spiriting up some uh, divine message. But this is actually, um, it's, not that, it's not a theory like that. This is rooted and anchored in history uh, with real dates and real places. Rome, as you all know, uh, I'm not going to say a whole lot about this, but Rome is the chief uh, imperial city of the Roman Empire. It's the um, home to the Roman Senate. It's the, that was the most enduring institution of the empire. It's lasted uh, from the founding of Rome in 753 BC to the fall of Rome in 476 AD. That's a pretty long time for any institution uh, to last. Not too long before the birth of Christ, Rome had changed, as you probably know, from a republic that is ruled by a Senate, uh, changed to an empire that is ruled by an emperor. I think we're seeing our country maybe going in that same direction. (laughs) We're going from a republic to to an imperial state, um, but we'll see. Uh, But Julius Caesar had become the first Roman emperor. The change had a lot to do, uh, really, with the source of Rome's prominence and prosperity. In the projection of its power through military might, okay? Julius Caesar had been a wise, effective general. So he's known to us, Julius is, as Caesar Augustus. He's born in 63 B.C., became emperor in 27 B.C., and reigned until 14 A.D. So this Caesar Augustus, he was the emperor, the very first one, and the emperor at the birth of Christ, During the life of Christ it was Tiberius Caesar who was emperor. He reigned until 37 AD. Uh, After Tiberius, just a quick succession here, you have Gaius who is also known as Caligula. Uh, He reigned from 37 to 41 AD. After Gaius it was Claudius. He reigned from uh, 41 to 54 AD. Uh, He he features a bit in the New Testament as well. Um, Finally, during many of uh, Paul's travels and when he wrote Romans uh, Emperor Nero was on the throne he reigned from 54 to 68 uh, AD so the Roman emperors and senators they are you might think of them as the top 1% of Roman society Okay, so these guys are not in the the, the mix of everyday life for any person Uh, they are way up there untouchable Okay, So they are um, at the top of this perch of uh, small and exclusive Roman nobility. Most of Rome's citizens were very poor. They had no power at all, practically speaking. Um, it, was, it was wealth that separated citizen, citizenry into several classes of people. And you might just, you, I, you know this from your own reading, the majority of Rome's population was, was enslaved. They were, it was a, much a slave society. Among the freeborn citizenry in Rome, the pathway to, to wealth and power was land, uh, being a, a land owner. So, if you think of an, an agrarian society, most the, the wealth comes from the land, and you have to be a Roman citizen in order to own land. And since most land is already owned, um, that means that you inherit your land if you own land. Um, so to increase wealth from the land, you had to make the land produce more than you can consume. And uh, you profit from the excess production. And if you do that, then you can acquire more land and continue to increase your wealth and your holdings and all that. And, and in order to do that, practically speaking, um, you own slaves. Slaves were the key to increased rapid production. And slaves were readily available and relatively cheap. Uh, Rome's many wars uh, provided uh, a, a great market for slave uh, trading um, and buying and selling for, of slaves, uh, flooded the market with constant influx of cheap labor. So Roman landowners, uh, they bought the slaves, they increased their wealth by increasing their productivity, Acquiring more land, more slaves, more land, more slaves, and on and on it goes, okay? So as wealth increases for a Roman landowner, a Roman slaveholder, uh, that man, whoever was the owner, had more time uh, to pursue more public roles. He could be freed up from some of the management of it, have slaves that would run things, and then he could uh, step into the public, uh, public roles, public sphere, maybe within politics or maybe around political figures. Uh, So some Roman citizens like that could eventually ascend into the equestrian class, which, uh, out of which that fed the senatorial order, and that was the entry point into the even more exclusive group called the Roman nobility. So there's this pyramid, starting with slaves and then um, freed or manumitted slaves, freed, freed people, and then you have free Roman citizens, and then you have landowners, and equestrians, and senatorial, and Roman nobility, and perched up at the top, you have the senate and uh, the emperor up at the top. So it's like a pyramid. Um, those, the, the, uh, the, the, it's not the top of that pyramid, you understand, that's in the Roman church. Okay, so these, most of what we're seeing, it's at the bottom half of the pyramid, which is pretty much what we see in our, uh, in our day as well. As well. Um, tens of millions of slaves throughout the Roman Empire. There are some estimates run as high as 50 or 60 million. Uh, Italy had a population of five to six million people. About a, 1.5 to 2 million of those souls were enslaved. Larger cities like Rome, Corinth, Ephesus, slaves made up about a third of the total population. The city of Rome itself probably had a slave population of about 400,000 in about 100 uh, 1.5 million citizens. So that's that's quite a number. um, Quite a number. As you might imagine, the influx of all these war prisoners turned slaves. uh, The draw of an imperial city like Rome. the magnetism of politics and wealth and banking and military and all of that, Rome was a place that drew people from all over the world. It's like, uh, you know, we think of New York or Chicago or L.A. or London or big cities like that. It was a, it was a very cosmopolitan place. The culture of Rome was, was Greek. Uh, the language was Latin. But the city itself was a melting pot of different cultures, different languages, uh, a whole number of preferred vices and the means of absolving uh, guilt came in the form of a plethora of all kinds of false religions. Among the citizens of Rome, according to uh, D. Edmund Hebert, the quote is a quote from him, the polytheistic heathen religion of Rome had fallen into the contempt of both the cultured and the uncultured classes of the cities, of the city. And he continues saying this, this left the masses, uh, that is the population, open to the ready penetration of various foreign religions being imported into the capital. There was in Rome a temple devoted to the worship of the Egyptian deities, Isis and Serapis, monuments of the worship of Mithras, Uh, Mithras was a a cult especially popular among Roman soldiers, uh, but monuments to the worship of Mithras known from the time of Tiberius. Nero himself reverenced the Syrian goddess Astarte, end quote. Um, Situation uh, in Rome is really not unlike what we have witnessed in our own country. If we go back to the 1960s and 70s in our country and the loosening of immigration laws, that has resulted in an influx of, of foreign born people and they bring their foreign culture and their foreign, especially religion, their foreign ideas. And that mixes in with American culture. So your kids are growing up um, playing soccer with kids from other parts of the world and now as you have barbecues and get together in social settings you now have religious ideas and different uh, philosophical ideas uh, confronting what you've always believed. And so in order to get along, you tend to drop your convictions to a lowest common denominator of how we can all get along, just as this happened in our country, happened in Rome, and especially during uh, hearing Paul's time. And this was actually, uh, unlike our day, this was actually advantageous. Uh, One of those uh, providential things that was advantageous for the, the influx of the gospel into the Roman mind. Um, among many Romans, as this ancient polytheism is falling out of vogue, it opened uh, the Romans to the ethical monotheism of the Jews, and many found it quite attractive and a, quite a contrast to the, to the polytheism they'd grown up with. Thousands of Jews had been brought into Rome um, in 63 BC after Pompey conquered Jerusalem. And so, for a number, uh, they would have just been enslaved, but for a number of political and practical reasons I'm not going to get into right now, they were allowed to live as freed men, though not Roman citizens, but freedmen in Roman society. So, even before the gospel made it to Rome, before the first church was planted in the city, exiled Jews. or or captured Jews were used of God to sort of, I like to say, soften the target um, as the Romans are intrigued by this ancient Jewish uh, religion and kind of listening, uh, listening to something that they were not familiar with. So the question we want to ask now is, second on your outline there, what was the origin and the composition of the churches in Rome? If you look at the first chapter, of Romans uh, there in, starting in verse 8 we need to understand at this point at the writing of Romans Paul had never traveled there he never traveled to Rome he writes in verse 8 first I thank my God actually let me get a reader for this section uh, Romans 1 8 through 15 got somebody who can read that? yeah Tim eight through 15. Yeah,
1: 15? first I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world for God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers, making requests that perhaps now at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be established, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you, while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far, so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also, who are in Rome.
0: Okay, thank you, Tim. Um, Even though Paul had wanted to visit these Roman Christians, um, he hadn't done so. He had been prevented. Uh, we understand that's a, kind of a, a divine passive there. It's God preventing him and holding him back and changing the plan. Um, but even though he had wanted to go there and was eager to get there, he didn't intend to stay in Rome for very long. He did want to be there for mutual encouragement. He did want to, uh, to reap, as my translation says, reap some harvest among you. Uh, but he didn't intend to stay there for too long. If you turn now to the other end of Romans, to Romans 15, let me get a reader for this part as well. Um, 15th chapter, and starting in verse 14. But uh, Paul considered the Roman churches, as we'll see here, he considered them to be firmly planted. Um, He considered the Roman churches to be really adequately adequately grounded. They they weren't without their uh, problems, Uh, We're going to see that he addresses some of them in the letter. But the churches, as he sees it, as an apostle, remember, were strong enough to be self-sustaining and self-perpetuating. So let me get someone to read Romans 15, 14 to 24. Somebody. Lori? It's a big section.
2: (laughs) I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. How far did you want? Just to 24, okay. so a little more. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while
0: so he's, um, rather than conducting uh, church planting work in Rome, which is really the nature of his apostolic office, since churches are already well established in Rome, and it says there, he, um, verse 20, he makes it his ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, and Christ has already been named by these churches in Rome. So he um, He sees them as well established as she read at the very beginning there. I'm satisfied you that you are yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able to instruct one another. So basically you are self-sustaining. You're a strong church. Um, So he intends to ask these Roman churches to help him to get to Spain. I'm going to pass through uh, and I want to stay and enjoy your fellowship and company, perhaps reap a harvest, but I'm really, I've got my sights set further. Uh, further west. Um, And I just want to point out real quick, here's a little bit of a footnote. I keep keep saying the churches in Rome, plural, and not the church in Rome, uh, which may help you sometimes in your uh, evangelism or conversations with Roman Catholics, because this, um, what we see here is not a singular unified, quote unquote, church in Rome. Uh, Or even, as some say, one church with many house churches. No, these are each local churches. They are meeting in homes, but they are each local churches that Paul writes to uh, in Rome. So that's why I keep using the plural churches and not the singular church, because it's not a singular church underneath Peter the Pope, okay? So just keep that in mind. Uh, It's clear if you go to Romans uh, 16, 3 to 5, Priscilla and Aquila, there are a number of churches meeting throughout the city, and this makes sense due to the vastness of Rome, uh, that it would be hard for it to get around and to be able to meet in one centralized location. Uh, so, Paul is greeting uh, a number of believers in Rome in Romans 16, uh, 3 to, I don't know, 13 or something like that, or 15. So, he's greeting a number of believers and he greets them by name and he writes in verses 3 to 5 Greet Prisca and Aquila, or Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches the Gentiles give thanks as well. And then this, greet also the church in their house. That's one among the number of churches that are meeting uh, in Rome, one that's meeting in their house. And that's why Paul wrote in his introduction, Romans 1, seven, to not the church in Rome, but to all those in Rome who are loved by God called to be saints. And not in contrast to like Corinth or Thessalonica, to the church in Rome. He didn't write that. So Romans 16, three to five, Paul is greeting one of the several churches meeting in the city. That's a meeting in the house of Prisca and Aquila. So um, as I mentioned, I think briefly last time, it's probably, uh, I think, a bit beyond dispute that no apostle planted the church in Rome. Uh, Tradition is very strong that both Peter and Paul... Though they're martyred in Rome, it says nothing of the origin of this church in Rome. According to the letter to the Romans we've already seen, Paul has not been there. And according to Acts and the timing of Acts, Peter hadn't been there either. If Peter had planted the church, it would be very surprising for Paul to write to the churches in Rome, making no reference at all to Peter whatsoever. Uh, He didn't reference Peter because Peter wasn't there at this time. In fact, if we were going to talk about the edict of Claudius that kicked out all the Jews, if Peter had been there, uh, that, that edict was in 49 A.D. From 49 to 54, that edict was in enforced, and there were no Jews legally in Rome. That would include Peter wasn't there. So we know in Acts 15, uh, Peter's still in Jerusalem for the Jerusalem Council. It happened, uh, happened around that time, A.D. 49, A.D. 50, and uh, Suetonius writes about Claudius's banishment of the Jews in Rome. It says, since, uh, Suetonius writes, since the Jews constantly made disturbance at the instigation of Crestus, uh, that's Christ. It's a little bit of a, a, a letter change there. But he, the emperor Claudius, expelled them from Rome, expelled the Jews from Rome. So, We can't nail down um, evidence of an apostolic founding of the churches in Rome, which I I do think is a fascinating mark of providence. Um, Even if it's a silent providence or commentary, uh, it it does attest to the fact that God did not um, tie the success of the gospel to the imperial city, to imperial wealth and imperial power Uh, Because if the success success of the gospel was tied to the success of a city or the success of Rome, it would have been fatal to the gospel. Uh, It would have been giving glory to man rather than glory to God who works in the small places, the small things. So if no um, apostle planted churches in Rome, who did? Go back in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. In Acts 2, five, what's going on in Acts? Anybody know? Acts chapter 2. This is too easy of a question. You're like, I don't want to, I don't want to answer this. It's a trig question. Pentecost. Pentecost. Okay, good. See, it was easy. I was just asking an easy one, a softball question. Um, but it, it, in Acts 2.5 we read about all those Jews who visited Rome or, sorry, Rome, Jerusalem. <laughs> That's a trick question. Uh, visit Jerusalem, these Jews and god who visited Jerusalem during the Feast of uh, Pentecost. And it says there, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And some of them according to verse 10 of Acts 2 were visitors from Rome. And it says both Jews and proselytes. So after those Jews from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, so Gentile proselytes into Judaism, after they heard the preaching of Peter, they were cut to the heart when they heard the gospel, and they repented, and they were baptized for the forgiveness of sins, and then all of these, as it lists there, uh, starting in verse 9, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia... Judea, Cappadocia, uh, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and uh, Pamphylia, Egypt, the parts of Libya belonged to Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arab- Arabians. After Pentecost was over, many of them probably went home. But before returning home, they learned the apostolic form and pattern of worshipping the God of their fathers not through Moses, but through Jesus the Messiah. Look at Acts 2, 42. Let me get a reader of 42 to 47. Acts 2, 42 to 47. Bruce.
3: And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles' those
0: who being saved. All right. <clears throat> I like you. I love that passage of scripture, um, but it really does speak to that the, the vibrancy and the energy and the joy and the generosity of that early communion of saints. There's really no telling when those Pentecost Jews finally returned to their their homes or finally returned. In our cases, we're interested in Rome But it's likely, very likely, many of them stayed in Jerusalem for quite some time. Who would blame them? Um, That's exactly where I'd want to be, is where the action is. Uh, Let my job go back home. I'm staying here. And that's probably what prompted this need, as it says in verse 45, that For the Jerusalem saints to be selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need because there's an influx of visitors from around the empire and now they're staying in people's homes just impromptu visits uh, but that Middle Eastern hospitality brings them in but then the resources run thin and now we got to sell some possessions and make, make sure we can provide for these uh, people. That's going to feature later on when Jerusalem is in great need. You remember Paul takes up a collection among the churches and brings them back to Jerusalem. There was a famine that hit Jerusalem. And why weren't they ready and prepared for it to handle it? Because they'd been giving their resources away from a very early uh, time. So they stayed probably for quite some time. But uh, if you turn to Acts 8, you can see that there is an event here that prompts probably their return. Uh, It's the stoning of Stephen in chapter 7 and the outbreak of persecution. That probably encouraged them to go home. Uh, So after Stephen's martyrdom, it says in Acts 8.1 that who approved of his execution? The future writer to the Romans. Uh, He did. Uh, So this unconverted Apostle Paul and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem and they're all scattered throughout the regions of Judea, Samaria except the Apostles. They stood fast and Keep that in mind as far as Peter, too. He's there, not in Rome, planning a church, uh, not the first pontiff, but he's there in Jerusalem. He's the pontiff in Jerusalem. Right. I'm just kidding.
4: Uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll cut that out.
0: But according to the, uh, the, to the power of the Spirit, it is not beyond imagination that these early believers, returning from Pentecost by the power of the Spirit, they could have founded the churches in Rome But there are two questions that come up about this theory that these churches in Rome were founded, established, planted by these Acts 2 Pentecost believers. First, we have to ask the question that even after this amount of time from Acts 2 to Acts 7, beginning of part of 8, did they have the maturity and stability that was sufficient to establish sound churches? It's one question. Uh, Because apart from... Apostolic uh, instruction—you uh, know—significant instruction on leadership and development, all those things. It's—it's it's, it could be that they did go home and do exactly that, but 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 also uh, maybe likely they could have returned to their synagogues and evangelized their, evangelized their fellow Jews, because you see early on in Paul's ministry that he went first to the synagogues, first to the synagogues. He was so concerned to to introduce the Messiah as he truly is to his own people. So that's, it's probably likely they did that. We don't know. But secondly, uh, a second question that comes up about these Acts 2 Pentecost believers founding the churches in Rome is, you've got to ask the question, go back to Romans, in Romans 16, end of Romans, you see verses 3 to... 15, 3 to 14, a bunch of names. These are people that Paul knows personally, okay? So how did Paul know the names of so many believers in the Roman church if these people again, a church he's never been to, people he's never met face to face, if these Roman churches are founded by Acts 2 believers, it's hard to see how Paul would have been able to get to know them before they departed from Jerusalem since he himself and his own persecution was the cause of their departure from Jerusalem. You get what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Okay. So they left while he's still an unbeliever, violently persecuting the church in Jerusalem. So those factors kind of lead us to believe that yes, there were Acts 2 Pentecost believers that went back to Rome, but they weren't necessarily the ones who established and planted Uh, those churches in Rome, at least by themselves. Probably it's more likely to see that various Pauline converts who traveled to and from Rome, they're probably the ones who helped to establish the church in conjunction with those early Acts 2 believers. So we know like the cities of Antioch, Corinth, Ephesus, they're in constant communication with Rome, uh, so it's reasonable to imagine Paul's converts and early disciples moving to Rome and then helping those early Pentecost believers come out of the synagogues uh, to form and establish Christian churches. I uh, mentioned Priscilla and Aquila, Paul greets them as being in Rome when he wrote, but he had first met them if you remember in Acts 18, he met them in Corinth. Acts 18.2 it says, he, Paul, found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius. He recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla uh, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. So there's that uh, that, uh, edict of Claudius. So Aquila and Priscilla, they're expelled by Rome, uh, or expelled by Claudius from Rome in AD 49 or 50, And they, uh, Christian Jews, along with non-Christian Jews, left because of this disturbance about Crestus. Uh, Claudius died in AD 54, at which time his decree really became null and void because Nero, the incoming emperor, didn't reissue the edict. So while Priscilla and Aquila are with Paul in Corinth, uh, they were with him there, but they were able to return to Rome after the death of Claudius, uh, which eventually they did. So This means Quill and Priscilla, they had moved. If you think about this couple, they're remarkable. They moved from Rome to Corinth, from Corinth to Ephesus, because we find them there too instructing Apollos in the way of the faith. And now Paul greets them, and they're back in Rome again. This couple is amazing. They... Yes, they're tent makers, and yes, they're business people. And they sound like they've got some means, which is probably, they probably left their business in Rome and said, okay, take care of this. They had faithful people taking care of it, and they took some funds and resources and traveled and, and established, but they were back in Rome now helping to found uh, and strengthen the church there. So what a, what a mentality about how to live your life, right? So I love that. But um, they're traveling connected with business, missionary work, Uh, but after these restrictions of Claudius' edict was relaxed, Uh, they see see the situation settle down a little bit politically and all that. It's natural to assume that they return to their original home in Rome. So the mobility of these early Christians, uh, these converts, would explain how Paul knew so many of the people in the church uh, without having previously been there. So some of these Acts to Pentecost converts returned to Rome, but not being fully instructed, well-trained, maybe being more evangelistically minded toward their fellow Jewish, uh, uh, toward their fellow Jews. Um, maybe they rejoined local synagogues, maybe didn't fully establish the churches, but those trained under Paul's ministry helped them to establish these local churches. So this uh, theory of forming and establishing the churches in Rome also helps us to understand some of the elements, the key elements in Rome that prompted even the writing of Romans. Namely, the Jewish-Gentile composition of the churches in Rome. There's clearly a contingent of Jewish Christians in the churches and they're influential. Paul calls them brothers. He calls them my kinsmen according to the flesh. Uh, I've got a whole slew of references here, but you can look it up too. But um, the Jewish believers, though they are prominent and they're well-respected members of the churches, they're in the minority. Okay, So these Gentile Christians, they're the ones in the majority. And as we see in Romans 11, 17 and 24, they need to be warned about becoming arrogant over and against the Jewish Christians. So uh, we'll get to that later. So we've talked about, uh, in your outline, the city of Rome. Talked about the origin, composition of the churches in Rome. Now let's figure out, third, the place, date, and occasion of Romans. Go back to Romans 15, uh, 25 to 32 uh, for a moment. I need a reader for that. Someone can belt that out. Um, this is a very important passage for understanding the occasions and setting uh, the date for Romans. Who's got this?
5: Who's got it? Lee? 15, 25 to 32. Okay, but now I'm going to Jerusalem serving the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased to do so and they are indebted to them. For if the gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. Therefore, when I have finished this, and I have put my seal on this fruit of theirs, I will go on on by way of you to Spain. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of blessing of Christ. Now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me, that I may be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints, so that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen.
0: Okay, thank you, Lee. So Paul, as we said, intended to visit Rome, but he'd been prevented. Again, we've said this is God's doing. Uh, We know this providentially eventuated in the writing of Romans itself. We wouldn't have it if maybe he was allowed there earlier. Uh, But he has finished his relief collection for the Jerusalem church, and he's heading back there to deliver the money. That frame of mind lines up very well uh, with what we read in Acts chapter 20. Go back to Acts chapter 20 now. I should be keeping you awake with all this page turning, right? So Acts chapter 20, verses 1 to 6 is at the end of his third missionary journey after he's left Ephesus. Um, Everywhere Paul goes, he starts riots, right? So (laughs) here he's starting another riot. He's leaving Ephesus. But he spent uh, three months in Greece. And it was during this time here in Acts 21 to 6 that he wrote the letter to the Romans. Uh, So let me get someone to read Acts 21 to 6. Yeah, Mark.
4: After the uproar ceased, Paul sent the for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through the through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months. And when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. So Peter and Berean, son of Piraeus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristochus, and Secundus, and Gaius, and Derby and Timothy, and the Asians, Titius, and Trophimus, these went on ahead and were waiting for him, for us, at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of the unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days."
0: Okay, this is like a total footnote here. Sorry, oh, sorry for all those funny names, you know. But actually, they have trouble pronouncing our American names. I'm sure. So, but uh, but let's um think think about that first. Uh, what's that?
4: Like Mark? Yeah, like like now,
0: Mark is actually in Scripture, so They have no problem that one. But uh, but if you look in if you look at uh, twenty one through four, notice that those are all third person. Pronouns and stuff. Notice when you get to verse 5, these went on ahead and we're waiting for what? Us. Us. But we sailed away from Philippi. What does that indicate? Well, Luke was there. Luke is there. Luke the writer is with them. Okay? Just a footnote for whatever it's worth. But in this, I want you to read that section. And yes, the difficult names. Uh, Because those difficult names show a number of connections to Paul's short stay in Corinth. And some of those names show up in the greeting at the end of Romans. So, again, solidifying the fact that Paul wrote this letter from Romans, and it helps us to set not just the, the date and the time but, and the place, but also the occasion. So, Timothy and uh, Sopater so so were Paul's companions when he left Greece for Jerusalem, and they greeted the Romans in Romans 16, 21. So they're with Paul at the writing, and they greet the Roman church. Gaius of Derby also, he's the one who, according to Romans 16, 23, hosted Paul, and the church that met in his house greeted the Roman churches as well. Um, Some of the others mentioned in Romans 16, they're also associated with churches in and around Corinth. Uh, Erastus, he greeted the Romans in verse 23 of Romans 16. He's the city treasurer in Corinth. Uh, Also, Phoebe, she's the one who carried the letter from Corinth to Rome. She was uh, from the church at Sencria, one of the port cities in Greece. So by placing the writing of Romans in Corinth and comparing Acts with Romans helps us to identify with some precision the date of writing Romans. So we said that according to Acts 18, Paul had entered entered Corinth on his third missionary journey, he was brought up there on charges before Gallio, the proconsul of Achaea, and that helps us to date the time Paul left Corinth at around 57 or 58 AD. Okay, so that's one bookend on the earliest writing for the Corinthian or the Roman letter. And on the other end, it couldn't go past this because of Paul's imprisonment in Caesarea, which lasted for 2 years. So, remember in how uh, I think it was Lee wrote uh, read um, Romans 15 30 to 32 and Paul asked for the Romans to be praying for him to be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea so that by God's will I may come to you with joy be refreshed in your company. Those prayers were answered they were answered yes but not in the way that Paul and the saints may have expected uh, when he went back he was delivered by imprisonment uh, from the unbelievers, and he was. He was delivered by imprisonment. He would have died. I mean, they were, they were plotting his death. They wanted to kill him, assassinate him. So he was delivered from the unbelievers, and then he was delivered then by God's providence from that prison to Rome safely on a nice journey through the sea, um, through the ocean. So he ends up in Rome, and he's refreshed in their company. No doubt he's refreshed in their company. No squishy socks, right? So um, he's there in his own rented house. So Paul's first imprisonment at Caesarea Philippi, his journey to Rome happened just before the outbreak of Nero's persecution in AD 63. So really any date between 57 and 59 AD would fall in the time when Nero restored order in the uh, provinces and would comport well with Paul's exhortation to respect the authorities in Romans 13.1. So Pine... Uh, finally. Paul, finally. I keep doing that, trying to combine words. Um, Paul will finally make it to Rome. Uh, Having been delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, he'll be refreshed in the company of the believers in Rome. Luke tells us at the end of Acts that Paul lived in Rome two whole years at his own expense, welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God, teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So, We know that he's eventually released from that Roman imprisonment and tradition tells us he finally did make it to Spain, though he was martyred in the end back in Rome. So with all that in mind, let's ask a question about why did Paul write Romans? Why did he write it? This takes us to a fourth point in your outline, the purpose for writing Romans. So though Paul wrote about his desire to visit and be helped on his way to Spain. And it could seem like this is a, a missionary letter that he's writing with missionary purposes to to have the Romans help him on to Spain. Romans is way too full and comprehensive of a letter to be a missionary support help letter. Um, and many have recognized this. Uh, but I do think that missionary purpose is very, very strong. It is a purpose of writing Romans, but I don't know that it's the fundamental purpose. So other purposes have been proposed. This is one, actually one of the interpretive problems of Romans. Um, some people believe that Romans has a polemical purpose, meaning that it's an argument against Jewish teaching on salvation in responses to charges of antinomianism. So you remember in like Romans 6, The emphasis on the salvation by grace, by grace, by grace says, you know, they're trying to accuse Paul of saying, hey, let us sin that grace may increase. So Paul's saying those charges are coming maybe from the Jews who are trying to push people back to the law of Moses. So some see a polemical purpose. Others say that Romans has a conciliatory purpose. That is, Paul is attempting to uh, validate his Gentile mission and reconcile Jewish and Gentile elements in the churches. Uh, and that's why he does all that uh, hey, you know, greet so-and-so, so-and-so greets you and, and all that. He's trying to conciliate and bring people together and make connections and, and all that. And while that's true, it just doesn't incorporate or account for all the evidence. Some say, and this is one you can just dismiss out of hand uh, that Romans has an existential purpose that is Paul is writing down his own personal meditations so that his thoughts will take on a more permanent form. You know I've always wanted to write this down. I've always wanted to write a book, you know um, <laughs> And I think this seems way too subjective and self-centered for. This, uh, who, this apostle, who is a self-abasing, humble man, has nothing of that of his mind in, in, of, of that in his mind at all. The traditional view is that Romans has a doctrinal purpose. And, and, and this is in distinction from any historical situation. People say this, Romans is, is doctrinally, it's, it's, a, it's a doctrinal uh, treatise, and Paul didn't know the historical situation, but he's using this occasion to write a doctrinal treatise. Um, um, and, and while Romans is rich in doctrine, uh, certainly, we do not deny the treatise, doctrinal treatise, nature of this writing, but I still think this evidence uh, or this uh, this view of the purpose doesn't deal with all the evidence. And several reasons: there are a number of important doctrines that Paul simply mentions, but he leaves unexplained. If it's a doctrinal treatise, he's going to unpack a systematic theology. So things like cosmic reconciliation, things like eschatology he mentions, but doesn't fully explain. Also, the, the section in chapters 9 through 11, they only really make sense in the setting of a, an historical context, or why he would even bring those things up. So there is historical background information that's driving his writing of this letter. Also, uh, personal allusions that are epistolar, uh, epistolary in character, All the personal greetings at the end. It's not just about making connections. It's not just about his own credentials. This represents his knowledge of the churches there in Rome and the historical situation. So he's informed. He knows what's going on in those churches. And he's writing as an apostle with a concern. So. I think there are certainly elements of several of those views, but I think the best view of Paul's purpose, and one that I think best harmonizes all the evidence here, is that Paul wrote with a pastoral shepherding purpose. He's writing to the churches as a pastor, and he's thinking about these churches that he never visited, many of whom he never met face to face. He's writing to them pastorally, but with the authority of an apostle. This, after all, is a function of his apostolic office to oversee the churches. And he has on his mind, as he writes, practical concerns that come from the heart of a shepherd. The main issue that he seems to be dealing with, this comes up in chapter 2, chapter 4, chapters 9 through 11, chapters 14, 15. The main issue that he seems to be dealing with is... Jew-Gentile relations in those local churches. Okay, so we already mentioned the edict of Emperor Claudius expelling Jews from Rome. This is very significant for any of those fledgling churches because you have to realize that in those churches from AD 49 to 54 what are those churches going to be composed of? Jews or Gentiles? Gentiles only right? The Jews are gone. So now it's Gentile in character until AD 54 at the death of Claudius and then Jews could return and mix in again. That creates a problem, okay? So as the, Jew, the Jewish Christians return to Rome and slowly rejoin their churches, it's understandable that they wanted to come back to the place of prominence and leadership that they had before Uh, You can see a bit of that dynamic in Romans 2, 17-21 as these Jews consider themselves in a superior position. They're instructors to the ignorant Gentiles. And so Paul needs to confront this Jewish sense of superiority over and against the Gentiles. On the other hand, the Gentiles, they've been without the presence of Jewish believers for more than five years and they're running the show. Okay? So, they've developed a bit, of a, a bit of an uppity attitude that really mirrors the arrogance of the Jews, and Paul had to confront their sense of superiority as well. Okay? So, the Jews took pride in their historic position with God, which they had by divine grace. The Gentiles took pride in their current position of prominence, which was also by divine grace. So, as this wise, loving pastor, Paul confronts pride Jew pride, Gentile pride, as each group has become arrogant against one another. And foolishly so, because any position that they have, they have received by the favor of divine grace. Okay? So on the one hand, Jews needed to see themselves as no better than Gentiles. Okay? So Paul spends a good bit of time knocking down Jewish pride, uh, the, the prominence that they felt because they were children of Abraham and receivers of the covenants and the promise and all that stuff and even though they had been indeed uh, amazing recipients of divine grace. So Paul lowers the boom on that Jewish pride in Romans 2, 17 and 19. He humbles them with statements like this in verse 27. He who is physically uncircumcised, now, that's anathema to a, to a Jew, but physically uncircumcised, but keeps the law, will condemn all of you who have, who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. Okay, that just deflates the balloon, doesn't it, right? But then he affirms the significance of Jewish privilege in chapter three. He says then, what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews are entrusted with the oracles of God. He also, later on, wants to prevent Jewish discouragement, lest the rebuke come so far or go too far, He wants to prevent their discouragement about God's rejection of the unbelieving nation of Israel. And so, to bolster their position before a growing arrogance among Gentile Christians, Paul explains the righteousness of God in his plan for Jew and Gentile alike. And he helps them to see all of this by God's providence and God's design. He wants all those churches of Rome to understand the problem of Israel's failure in light of God's overarching sovereign plan and to explain Israel's relationship to the Christian churches. So you can read about all that in Romans 9 through 11, but all of that is really summarized in Romans 11, 11 to 32, um, which we're not going to read just now. But Paul started making the case there that the righteousness of God, uh, in Romans 9 through 11, he started making the case that uh, well, I should, I should say, actually, at the very beginning of the epistle, he makes the case that the righteousness of God unto salvation is for all who believe Jew and Gentile. For the Jew first, and also the Greek. Because the righteous shall live by faith. And that started back in Romans 1, 16-17. But then, he explains and reiterates that conclusion in chapters 9-11 to with a summary right in the middle of that section. In Romans 10, you can turn there if you'd like to. Romans 10, 9-13... This is familiar to us, but sometimes we, we kind of tear it out of its context and, and, um, and kind of miss the whole import. But um, Romans ten nine to 13, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. But the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Okay, so that that takes it out of the realm of Jew and Gentile and transcends that and says the people of God are the people who believe. They are the the ones who call on the name of the Lord. They'll be saved. and It's the same Lord. Okay? He also writes as the apostle to the Gentiles. Paul is a Jew by birth, but he dearly loves his Jewish brethren. He grieves over their rejection, He longs for their salvation, and for the consummation of God's plan to restore Israel, which is promised in the Old Testament. So in Romans 11:12, he says, if they're, go ahead and turn to Romans 11:12, he says, "If they're tr- trespass, means riches for the world and if their failure means riches for the gentiles how much more will their full inclusion be and then he continues writing saying now i am speaking to you gentiles inasmuch then as i am an apostle to the gentiles i magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow jews jealous and thus save some of them for if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world What will their acceptance mean? But life from the dead. And that's what he longs for. That's what he longs to see. So that is just a bit of a summary of the main argument of Romans. It shows that his chief concern in the purpose he's writing is a pastoral concern. It's a shepherding concern. He has transcended Jewish-Gentile tensions and distinctives and by transcending them um, he's turned all Christian minds Jew and Gentile turn them upward to see the sovereign plan of God to glorify himself by revealing his righteousness so what Paul has done expertly in this letter he has united all believers in humility and submission as together, Jew and Gentile alike, whatever group, they bow down to God and worship because of this profound theology that puts God, God's wisdom on display. Okay? You get that? That's my view and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> All right? So, Paul accomplishes this pastoral purpose by teaching the Romans the true nature of the righteousness of God in the gospel of divine grace. And that comes to us through faith. This righteousness of God, that is a concept here that's traced through Romans. That righteousness of God is grounded in the holy character of God. We see the demonstration of God's righteousness in the whole of Romans as we've already said. We see it in the condemnation of the wicked. We see it in the the, the, the salvation of Jew and Gentile alike by faith. We see it, we see the righteous character of God in his sovereignty and making decisions and making distinctions and condemning some and saving others. He's, he's absolutely sovereign, absolutely free. But regarding salvation, the righteousness of God refers to a right standing before God. It's granted to all who believe. And this is the great leveling, humbling doctrine that unites Jew and Gentile alike in the church. So once again, these Jews and Gentiles, they need to see that they all ground is level at the cross. They need to see that the the righteousness of God by faith is the humbling doctrine that brings them all together and so Romans at the end of the day is about God and His glory. So when we see that, when we see the true message of Romans, a million pastoral problems just absolutely evaporate. They like disappear. That's Romans. Okay? We've talked about the, the city of Rome, the churches in Rome. We've talked about the place, date, and occasion for writing, as well as Paul's fundamental purpose in writing. So, with the time that remains, let's, uh, let's cover a final point. The usefulness of Romans. Is Romans useful? Oh boy, is it useful? <laughs> For this, I'd like to focus our attention on the, uh, the final portion of Romans, chapters 12 to 15, which promote good order and discipline in the local churches. Uh, you could turn to Romans 12.1. We'll read a few verses there. But I just want to emphasize that it's not like there hasn't been practical instruction all along the way, okay? Romans is filled with practical instruction, and the practical and the doctrinal are intertwined. It's practical because it's doctrinal. And it's, pra- it's doctrinal in the sense that it's practical and put into use. So don't ever, 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 ever make a distinction between, oh, that's just doctrinal stuff. Oh, but, but I want the practical. Or, well, they're just getting way too practical. I want the doctrine. Bring them together in your mind. That's what doctrine should be as practical. Okay? Romans is pra- uh, packed with practical theology practical instruction for the Christian life, and it's all doctrinal. The doctrine of total depravity, which we we read about in Romans 1-3, through that not only reveals the nature, the reason for our condemnation under the righteous wrath of God. Practically speaking, this explains the reasons for our constant failure, right? There's actually a real comfort to be found for struggling Christians who wonder why they fail so much with sin. Go to Romans one. See what you're made of. See from what you've been saved, and know that if you struggle, oh, of course you're going to struggle. It's a real comfort to, to Christians who struggle with sin that they know that look, I struggle because look at what I come from. Look at what I'm made of. Look what I've I'm fallen. I'm fallen. That's so important. Total depravity is so practical. It's humbling, yes, but it's also comforting as well, okay? Nothing like uh, the doctrine of justification by divine grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. This settles the pastoral. uh, I I find this is one of the greatest pastoral challenges I face is to help people who struggle with assurance, assurance of salvation. That That is a difficult pastoral problem because people are, are just perplexed because they know themselves and they just wonder how can I think like this how can I have this stuff in me and still be a Christian and I, and I just try to say get outside yourself look to the cross look to God look to Christ and when you find all of your assurance in an objective reality and rather than a subjective experience you'll find reasons for assurance And that doctrine of justification is explained. How that can be is explained with this doctrine called imputation, which is in Romans 5. Um, How those in Adam can be reckoned guilty for Adam's sin, but conversely, how those who are in Christ can be reckoned righteous for Christ's obedience. say, how can that be? Read Romans 5. And if you want help in Romans 5, get this thin little book, just, a, just an eensy-weensy little book. Very quick read. You could probably get it done in 30 minutes. Just kidding. It's a very packed. This is John Piper called Counted Righteous in Christ. And uh, it's, it's dealing with some of the recent attacks against the imputation of Christ's righteousness. But it is a fantastic study of Romans 5, 12 and following. So I recommend that to you. John Piper is... He shines, he shines brightly in this book. He's, I love that mind. But... Um, this, this issue of imputation, understanding the reckoning of, of sin to Christ and Christ's righteousness to us, if we understand that, then we understand how God can justify the ungodly, how He can declare us righteous on the basis of faith. And if we understand that, oh, we're comforted. We find full assurance. We find our hearts at rest, like it says in Romans 5. There is therefore no, or no, what does it say in Romans 5? Um, someone help me out here. Okay, you can't help me out? All right. Okay, so therefore, since we have justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, right? Justification leads to your peace, leads to your assurance, leads to, uh, there's this objective peace that then results in a subjective peace. That's what Romans 5 talks about, okay? So the doctrine of sanctification, again, I'm just going through some doctrines in the book of Romans that are doctrinally profound and yet so practical, Doctrine of sanctification promotes holiness in the believer and holiness in the churches as believers come to realize not what, just what they've been saved from, but what they have been saved to. They're not just saved from divine wrath and condemnation and eternal death and hell and all the rest. They're saved to live lives of holiness that magnify the glory of divine grace among God's people. Why is that a comfort to us? Why is that so practically helpful? Because I can tell a Christian you don't need to live in sin. You do not need to be underneath the power of sin. You don't, you're not enslaved to sin anymore positionally, objectively, and now subjectively. You don't need to live this way. You don't need to live this way. That's such a comfort. Chapters 8 through 11, we learn about the, the doctrines of divine sovereignty divine prerogative, divine freedom, divine wisdom. All those doctrines are so incredibly practical in humbling our hearts, settling our hearts, setting us a rest in God's sovereignty and his wisdom. I think it was Melinda and Lisa Alexander talking about how often they use the doctrine of God's sovereignty to settle their own minds and to counsel other people to settle their minds. Settle your mind. God is sovereign. It's not a flippant throwaway line to say, oh, God is sovereign, just everything's going to be fine. But it's actually when you get in there and show you care and understand and then you help them to see, you know what, God is absolutely in control. That is a precious doctrine. All that doctrine is so very practical and it sets a foundation for Paul's pastoral concern to promote good order and discipline of the church in chapters 12 through, through 15. And that starts, who would like to read this powerful couple verses, Romans 12, 1 to 2? Anybody want the powerful verses? No? no. All right, Bruce, Bruce, the, the early bird gets the worm, man. Go ahead.
3: <laughs> I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what, the will, what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable
0: and perfect. Okay, thank you. That living sacrifice mentality. And get this, it's, it comes about because we understand the mercies of God. What are those? Romans 1-11, through those are the mercies of God. So he's appealing to his brethren by the mercies of God to present themselves as a living sacrifice. And that living sacrifice mentality, if you embrace that, if you have in your mind, my life is lived out as a sacrifice for everybody else around, for God and for others. I'm going to spend myself for other people. That's what my life is for. If you have that mentality, It promotes a spirit of unity and brotherly love in the church. That's Romans 12, 3 through 13. It also prepares the church for future suffering. He's already spoken comfort to a persecuted church in Romans 8, 18 to 39. But here in uh, Romans 12, uh, 14 to the end, he's also talking about the same thing, preparing The the church for future suffering. If you're a living sacrifice, hey, kill me. I'm already dead. (laughs) Kill me. What can you do to me? It's like Paul. You stoned him. He shakes off the dust, gets back, and goes right back into the the city and preaches the gospel again. I've already dealt with the issue of my life. My life is not mine. It's Christ's. So I'm going to keep on doing what I do. It also, this living sacrifice mentality promotes good social order calling the church to submit to governing authorities. Romans 13 1-7. Um, we understand we're living sacrifices and that living sacrifice is going to be done within a social order that God has established. So all authority that exists is an authority instituted by God and so therefore we're going to live as living in submission to the governing authorities. Living sacrifice mentality calls Christians to live a life of love. Romans 13 8-10. That section right there sounds remarkably like a summary of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. The living sacrifice mentality calls for Christians to walk in holiness. Uh, Romans thirteen eleven to fourteen and ends with this: "But put on Romans thirteen fourteen put on the Lord Jesus Christ." Paul says, "Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires." If you're a living sacrifice, you want that sacrifice to be holy, pure, devoted to Christ. From then Romans 14:1 1 to 1513, Paul deals with a very important subject to promote unity and harmony in the churches, and he teaches them how to practice love among others with differing opinions. You think you're gonna have in a church differing opinions? Maybe a few. Um, but essentially, in their churches, Jew and Gentile. You had Gentile proselytes who came to appreciate the law of Moses and practice it and, and now their Gentile brethren aren't, brethren aren't appreciating that and other Gentiles are saying well you're going a little too far with that whole you know, feast day thing come on let me off the hook uh, some people think they can eat all the meat they want to or meat that's sold in the, uh, in the aftermarket in the idols to back into the idol's temple and other Christians say oh no stay away from all that you know, drink uh, only water, drink wine, drink. So it's just, they're, they're all different opinions. And Paul says, let's, let's have this living sacrifice mentality that takes us into how to practice our freedom, our, our liberty in Christ. So this section of scripture, it sounds very similar to the teaching of 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, which addresses the same issue of righteous use of Christian liberty. You want to know how to use Christian liberty? Christian liberty, which is your freedom, it is all about setting aside your rights. You have the liberty and the freedom to set aside your rights to love somebody else. You're free to do that as a Christian. Now, before, as a non-Christian, you had no freedom to do that. Your rights, your personal rights, and what you did with your time and your energy and your resources and your attention, that all had to do with you. You were enslaved to self-centeredness. But now that you're a Christian... You have the liberty to set aside all your rights and give yourself to the other brother. That's what Christian liberty is about. We could talk about that more. But all after all that's been said, Romans, Paul's epistle to the Romans, is a masterpiece of Christian doctrine. He gives us throughout the book of Romans a masterclass on evangelism. On this is the gospel, and this is how you share it. That's why there is a Romans Road method of sharing the gospel, because Romans is so rich. Now, I just say, along with your Romans Road, make sure and teach the context, too. That's all I'm saying. Just use the fullness of it and make sure you emphasize that it's not all about you. It's all about God. Okay. some people like to point to uh, point new Christians to the gospel of John as an introductory to the faith. And I, I do get that. I have found, I don't know if this has been your experience, but I have found that the Gospel of John is really, really profound. It requires a lot of reflection and pondering and study to really get down to the the real meaning of all those different texts. You can read it from the surface, and that's why I think it's so beautiful for a new believer to get what they get out of the Gospel of John, but it's true meaning. It's really found a lot of deep, uh, slow pondering and reflection that is really more the character of an older believer. I like to point people to Romans, new Christians, to Romans. Because this, if they get Romans, and it's really not as difficult as some people make it out to be, but if they get Romans, they're going to get the Christian life. They're going to get the gospel. They're going to be so strengthened. And I, I feel that you know in my early Christian discipleship, it's almost exclusively from the book of Romans. I became a Christian and didn't have, uh, you know, a church around me. I was sent off to the Gulf. And, and so I read through the Bible from cover to cover, just reading the Bible because I get an overview. But uh, the first book I studied in, in, in any kind of intense detail, which I'll admit, it, my first year as a Christian wasn't as deep as uh, what I may have thought it was. But I did go verse by verse through the book of Romans, then the book of Ephesians, then the book of Acts. And it set my foundation So that when I came back from that time uh, in the Middle East and came into the churches there, I was being called names that I didn't even know what they were, Um, you know, theological little um, uh, pejoratives, you know, were, were attached to me that I was that kind of a Christian or this kind of a Christian. And. I had to go look up what they were talking about and see how they were insulting me. Um, but, uh, but it really did set my foundation. I looked around and said, well, well what about this in the book of Romans? And they're like, Bob, uh, let's, let's go to this passage of Scripture. So get new Christians into the book of Romans. Get yourself into the book of Romans and study it. So all too brief introduction to the colossal epistle to the Romans. But I do trust it's enough to whet your appetite, get you studying in more detail. Uh, we've got a few minutes left. Any, any questions? No? You all good to go? All right. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the time we've had tonight. Uh, to think more, um, more deeply and, and also more comprehensively about uh, the message of Romans and get this introduction to it, And I pray that you would use it to good effect in our lives, in our church, and flowing out from our church to others whom you will call draw to salvation. I pray that you would um, ground the faith of many uh, through this wonderful epistle. Thank you for what you've done in my life to, um, to strengthen me through the book of Romans. And I pray that you would do that for all who are here and all who hear this. We love you. We thank you for our great salvation. We thank you for justification by faith. We thank you for all these doctrines that are, that are taught through the book of Romans. And we thank you for your amazing grace. We thank you that the gospel is all about you uh, because you are the only one worthy of all of our worship and praise. And we offer it to you in the name of Jesus Christ our Savior. Amen.
3: Hey, Dad, really quick, I wanted to ask, do you have, I did have a quick question about, um, do you have good, a couple commentary recommendations, like a really easy one? Yeah, or to go okay,
0: through? so you should get a hold of Luther's commentary on Romans and just read this commentary. It's, it's obviously, he's coming from Reformation um, concerns, so he's thinking through Reformation concerns. He writes this commentary. It's fantastic. Read that. And... Um, uh, the other one I use is uh, Cranfield, C.E.B. Cranfield. It's a two-volume in the International Critical Commentary Series, but it is technical. So those are the ones that pop into my head immediately, but I'd say get get this one. If you come across N.T. Wright on Romans, I'd say um, either stay away from it or talk to me. And I'll help you how to read it with discernment because N. T. Wright denies imputation. He's the one that John Piper is disputing, debating with in uh Counter Righteous in Christ. So N. T. Wright has taken a view of of Romans that uh, has become very popular among people your age and uh, well from the thirties on down and uh, and they, they think you know N. T. Wright um, you know he's 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 all that. So and he's very, he's very influential, he's very easy to listen to, very easy on the, on the ears, he's prolific, written so much, and, um, and he's, he's such a good writer. But he dismisses um, the view of righteousness, uh, of justification. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't say it's a divine declaration, or he says, yeah, it yeah, may be in there, but really it's about this. And then he tries to recast the whole of Romans in a view of, of vindication, ultimate vindication, which really, ironically, comes full circle right back to Rome, that you really can't be assured of your salvation until the very end when God's, God's ways are vindicated, and those who vindicate God's ways, declare him righteous, um, they, are, they are brought in. So it's about a big picture, about big meta narratives, and all that. And so I just want to turn you away from N.T. Wright, or if you're really compelled to say, you know what, I'm going to tackle that guy. Come talk to me, so we can we can work through that. Okay. The second that guy was Cranfield. <clears throat> yeah, Cranfield. Uh, Cranfield. C.E.B. Cranfield. C.E.B. Cranfield.